Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. So many delicious things start with cooking onions. Onions are the foundation of the world's great cuisines. Coming up this hour, we celebrate the onion, the most essential ingredient in the kitchen. We talk to a chef and historian who'll explain how onions came to be associated with Westport, Connecticut. And an ecologist known as the Seed Huntress tells the tale of how her initiative revived the Southport Globe Onion. But first, a conversation with Kate Winslow, author of the book, Onions, Etc., The Essential Allium Cookbook. Now look, this is no lightweight primer on onions. It's more than 300 pages of everything a cook needs to know about onions, with recipes, beautiful photos, and great family stories woven in. Kate's co-author is her husband, Guy Ambrosino, who also took the photos for the book. Kate, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you so much. It's always really fun to meet a fellow onion lover. I believe firmly that everything delicious on the planet starts off with onions and garlic. I agree. You kind of just put them in the pan and figure out what comes next, you know? That's exactly how we feel. And, you know, I have no idea what I'm making for dinner. I grab an onion, I start chopping, I grab some garlic. And I know just in that time that it takes me to chop or slice that onion, I can start figuring out what direction I'm going to go in. I was looking through this book and I got to start right off by just saying the, the photography is amazing. The pictures look gorgeous. It makes me want to go cook, which I think is kind of what you want with the cookbook. My husband Guy is a great photographer and he's also a great cook himself. So he brings that sensibility to his photography. He knows food. He grew up in a family of cooks. So he knows food even you know on a deeper level than I do in some ways, uh, just because he grew up working in his dad's fish store. What also is cool about the book is all the little family stories kind of woven into the book. So it's a really cool way to tell one big story, you know? Yeah. And that's what we found as, you know, when we decided to do this book and and, uh, started working with our publisher, we were so excited about the topic of onions and alliums. But then as we started getting into it, it's just huge. You know, almost every savory dish could begin with an onion, a leek, a shallot, or some garlic. And so we thought, gosh, how can we make this manageable? This could be the biggest book in the world. And so what we found we needed to do was to dive into it in a personal way, start with personal stories, recipes that really meant a lot to us. Once we got into that mindset, it really started coming to life. I got to ask you, I'm sure everyone always asks you when they talk to you, why onions? What happened to you? Like, why did onions become the thing? (laughs) Well, I think it's always been, you know, it was always sort of a background thing that we didn't think about much. And then about 10 or 11 years ago, we got an opportunity to move to Sicily and work at a cooking school. One of the things that we were struck by while we were there was that every dish really began with these beautiful red tropea onions that they grew on the farm at the cooking school. It was just the first thing you just, anything that's the caponata, the spinchone, any of the salsas, the tomato sauces, you started by chopping an onion, getting it going in olive oil. So we just started thinking, wow, we're using a lot of onion. We're going through onions all the time here. Then when we got back, we were visiting my family. I grew up in Pittsburgh and we were walking around the Strip District, which is a great wholesale food area of of the city. Uh And we were just, we're walking by a warehouse and we peeked in and the whole warehouse was just filled with bags of onions getting ready to be shipped out. We thought, wow, a 
okay, onions again. And then a couple weeks later, I went to a taco restaurant. On the menu was an onion taco that was just grilled onions folded into a corn tortilla with a little bit of queso fresco. It was incredible. It was meaty. It was sweet. It was savory. Ever since then, we thought, maybe this is something we could do. And then years later, we got a chance to. Yinzers in Pittsburgh came up with that? Down there? That's my Pittsburgh accent. I know. Weird, right? (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, I mean, the Strip District is a fantastic food district. I've spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh, and I love the city. Nice. But, I mean, I never would have thought you would get an onion taco from Pittsburgh. That's insane. I know. It, It really stuck with me over all these years. So the book covers 17 types of alliums. And we can't talk about all of them, but... I want to talk about the ones that you call the keepers, you know, like the workhorses. Those are, you know, the storage onions, the yellow onions, the uh, red onions and the white onions. These are the most common ones. I think 87 to 90% of all onions grown in the U.S. are yellow onions. You know, they've become so popular because obviously they are so flavorful. They cook up so well and they store really well. People have always known they can keep them on hand. So Those are the basis for so many dishes. Yellow onions, I love, usually cook those. I don't eat them raw that often. Red onions, we also cook those all the time. We also pickle them because their color is so beautiful, but they also just can sometimes be a little bit milder and they work well in salads so you can eat those raw. And then white onions, the same thing. We cook them and we eat them raw as well. Pickled onions are one of the funnest things to use if you need a quick salad topper or something like that. You know, when I do it, I just take a little red onion, slice it nice and thin, you know, a little bit of salt, a little bit of uh, red wine vinegar, or you can even do it with lemon juice and salt also, (laughs) and just let it kind of pickle into that juice and then put those on top of your salad. You can actually make a beautiful salad dressing out of that liquid too. Exactly. And uh, we always have pickled onions in our fridge. We use them on top of eggs. We add them to tacos, to salads, to over grilled steak. We use them constantly. You know, it's funny. My love of onions came from a whole different place. I was working at a place in Florida, and they did a massive lunch service there. And the chef told me, we don't want to put raw onions on people's lunch. And I was like, well, it's delicious. Why not? It tastes great. He goes, because they have to go back to work. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna have onion breath in their offices and at work. So I got into the habit of pickling them then because it really kind of tones it down. It does. You're also a big fan of the greenery on the onions. You know, like you like scallions and chives and the tops of the onions as well, right? For sure. Scallions are great. You know, some people who are intimidated about chopping or peeling onions, scallions are great because they require very little prep. They can be used raw. They can be sauteed. They make a great base if you're doing an Asian preparation. If you uh, blend them up with ginger and garlic and add that to your stir fry, it adds an instant hit of freshness or to a curry. It's fantastic also. Chives are also wonderful as a finishing, just chopped up chives on top of a salad or something. It adds sort of almost an acidic tang to something and a really fresh snap of oniony flavor. Leeks are one of my favorites, but my favorite that I use so much is the shallot. I have such a love for a shallot. Kate, I can't tell you how often I use shallots in place of using the giant yellow onion or a giant red onion. What works in their favor is their size, that you don't need to use a whole onion all the time. And sometimes the size of a shallot is absolutely perfect for what you need. Totally. And those, we're, we're always making salad dressing. We eat a lot of salads in our family. And so we're always chopping shallots, adding them to the end of a jar of mustard, adding some vinegar and olive oil. And we'll kind of just keep adding, to, as it gets low, we just keep adding to it because they're sort of pickled in there after a certain amount of time. And they yeah. just, just keeps growing. It's wonderful. I love to roast them. I take a little tomato paste, 
put them on top of the shallot and then uh, a little salt when I roast them in the oven. So we do steaks, serve with a roast shallot on the side. Mm. Just delicious, you know. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Oh, it's shallots are so fun to use. I mean, they're so versatile. Yeah. I think a lot of people too, they go to dice an onion or cut an onion up. And I mean, there's so many different ways you can cut it. Maybe we could give them some of our favorite tips and, you know, to kind of cut an onion when it comes to trying to keep it as perfect as possible without making a big mess. We'll hold back the tear story in a second, but yeah. you know, what do you think are some of the best tips you can give for cutting an onion? The best thing is to just start with a very sharp knife. I think that helps everything because onions can be so slippery and a dull knife is just going to skitter off of it. It, it. it just makes it harder. Leave that root end on when you cut it because it'll hold the onion together as you're cutting it down so it doesn't slide everywhere. And start with a flat side. Anything that's ever round, make it flat. Cut a little piece off so it's flat. A flat vegetable is much easier to cut than a round one for sure because it's going to yep. hold everywhere. And Straight up, like she said, a sharp knife. Friends, I can't express to you how important that is. A sharp knife is way less dangerous than a dull knife. You have more control over a sharp knife than you do a dull knife. For sure. Dull knife takes more force. Sorry, I can, I'm preaching now. Let me get off my soapbox. <laughs> the only times I've ever cut myself in the kitchen is when I'm working with a dull knife because it will slip and it will hit my finger. A sharp knife will always just catch the food. A dull knife catches your finger. <laughs> those are your battle scars. You got to have those. That's, that's... Oh, I have plenty. <laughs> <laughs> That's your story in the kitchen. Yeah. I know I have so many stitches, scars in my hands from when I was younger. And even still, 25 years into, into cooking professionally, I still cut myself. Yeah, um, of course. So on the website, we've got a couple recipes I'm really excited to share with everyone. One of them is your red onion galette. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. Do you remember that one? This is um, a really easy, very few ingredient uh, recipe that we have. It's um, a nice basic pastry dough that I use for almost all of my sweet and savory tarts. And it's a freeform galette, it's sort of a double allium recipe because I add a bunch of chopped scallions to the goat cheese. Yeah. And I smear that all over the inside of the pastry. And then I've taken some roasted slices of red onion that have just been roasted on one side for a little bit, held together at the root end, and then arrange them in sort of a, a pretty pattern on there, fold over the edges of the dough and bake it for about half an hour. It's just a really nice, easy, simple recipe. You're getting that double allium hit. It's great with a green salad or a cup of soup. It looks beautiful and it's super simple. Yeah, easy, right? That's, yeah. A, that's a win all around. Easy lunch dish right there for sure. I just think that any kind of roasted onions and goat cheese are best friends. It's great. And uh, and it's one of those things that you can serve it hot right out of the oven, but you could also make it earlier in the day and serve it at room temperature and perfectly good. Caramelizing onions is one of those fun things to always talk about as a chef and with people who cook a lot and understand how useful they can be. You know, I think in the book you talk about how it's a great thing to make ahead of time and always have. Yes, I actually have um, a bunch in the freezer right now that I've been thinking about what I want to do with them if, they, if I want to turn them into, you know, French onion soup or throw them on a pizza dough. I, I love caramelized onions. I think people get a little intimidated. They think they take longer than they need to. But I mean, they, they take 45 minutes to an hour to really get that deep color. You want to take that time. But it's not, you know, it's not a lot of attention that you need to, to give to them. Every once in a while, you go over and stir them. Some people add sugar to their caramelized onions, but I don't feel like you That's need cheating. to. I think that, you know, cooking them slowly enough, there's so much natural sugars in the onions and they start over time just releasing that and, and they're just going to caramelize on their own. I love hitting them with just a little bit of acid at the end, a little bit of uh, red wine vinegar or lemon juice, just to, I, th I find it brightens them up and lightens them a little bit. And uh, they're fantastic to have on hand. Yeah. I a hundred percent finish them with lemon juice and a pinch of salt. It's the yeah. way to go. Yep. So <laughs> 
I was told a long time ago, I can't remember if it was the CIA when I went to culinary school or what the story was. Onions are in the lily family. And I've always said, oh, they're like, they're, they're beautiful flowers. Am I wrong? They are related. And I'm, I'm not a gardener, so I don't know that part of it so much. But that is true that they are part of the lily family. I think lilies are beautiful. So I say that's why we should use onions because they're beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think if people really take a minute and look at, I mean, you know, you look at certain flowers and, and you, and when you look at a leek growing or a scallion and you realize it's growing like a flower, it's growing this beautiful green stalk. And then if it goes long enough, there will, you know, chive blossoms will grow. It's a, a beautiful botanical object. We can't talk onions, not talk onion rings. What are some tips you'd have for people who want to make onion rings at home? We just deep fry them. You know, we, we get enough good peanut oil bubbling and, and just go for it. You can do like a decent sort of roasted onion, you know, dredging them and putting them in panko and things like that and, and roasting them. And, and you can get that to work too. I know a lot of people have been using the air fryer for making onion rings, but I haven't explored that enough to really try it out yet. But I do like, I like a good batter on my onion rings. I like a good kind of goopy batter on there. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. I've been air frying them. It works great. Yeah. So tell me, like, give me some tips for air yeah, so if you're going to air fry them, I think you kind of called it right there. You, you don't want to do like a battered onion ring. You can do a breaded one. So I cut them a little bit thicker mm -hmm. um, using red onions. I think they taste better for this particular application. And you bread it. Use a little panko breadcrumbs or, you know, you can use a regular breadcrumb as well. When you mix your breadcrumbs, you want to add a little garlic powder, a little bit of salt, toss it up nice and mixed up. And I crush the panko in my hands a little bit so it's mm. a little bit finer. Nice. A little bit time consuming, but God, they come out so good. Just, you know, standard breading procedure, seasoned flour egg wash into the breadcrumbs and then right into your air fryer for like 10 minutes. It's awesome. Sounds delicious. Oh, they come out so good. You know? I'm trying them tonight. I'm trying it. It works. With all the, everybody being at home right now, we all love comfort food and the grits with scallions and bacon recipe is going to be on our website. And I'm excited to talk to you about this one because it's a, my Southern roots are screaming at me right now that grits and bacon and scallions would be delicious. They are. It's an easy sort of creamy sauce that you're making. You're, you know, you make your grits separately and then you're cooking bacon, getting it nice and brown, taking the bacon out of the pan and then adding your scallions to that bacon fat, letting them soften and uh, take on that delicious bacony flavor and then adding some cream to that and letting it simmer. Mm. And that's simply your sauce. Once your grits are ready, you add the bacon back in and spoon that all over your grits. Super good, delicious with a poached egg added to it or a fried egg. It could be breakfast, it could be lunch, it could be dinner, delicious. That sounds amazing, I should go make that right now. I mean, I don't know if it's a great time to make that kind of dish. We'll call it a midday snack, how about that? <laughs> so in talking to you, I'm picturing right now you have just barrels of onions in like a room somewhere in your house. Am I, am I going overboard? No, not, I mean, when we were working on this book, for sure, there are onions everywhere. Now we're sort of down to our normal, I mean, I think behind me I have a bowl of uh, probably about four or five red onions, a handful of yellow onions, a bunch of garlic, and several shallots. Inside the fridge, I know there are scallions. I think I'm out of leeks right now. But yeah, it's, it's not crazy. But it's always important to have them on hand because I know I'll use them. You know, my father-in-law is a massive gardener and you know, he grows tons of onions. And I never really knew or understood you grow that you can grow the onions and you kind of let them cure. You kind of let them sit for a while before you would cut into them again. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to let them, because when they're growing, they have these great big green tops, like a shallot, you know, a ball bunion will still have this, that green top, but you got to harvest them, lay them out on, on table. So there's lots of air circulation. And so that top dries up right. and sort of seals. So when you rip it off, it seals the onion in and its own sort of protective package. So air can't get in to make it spoil. 
I never even knew that that was a thing. I thought you'd pull them out of the ground and use them. And I remember going into the basement at his house, and there's just tables full of onions laid everywhere. And it was kind of pretty, I guess, in a weird way. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a beautiful thing. I mean, and it just helps you sort of understand, like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I understand why that needs to happen. So we can have this as a, a stored food. So a lot of these recipes in this book are inspired by a family and travel and places you've lived. Talk about that a little bit and kind of how that helped inspire these dishes. I started cooking while I was in college. So there are recipes from my time working in a Greek restaurant in Charlottesville. There's recipes that were inspired when I was working as a chef at a ranch in Wyoming. Guy comes from a big Italian family and there are recipes that he grew up with like fried water. And we've always cooked together a lot. And I think some of like many people and something that we really miss right now is we miss gathering around with friends around the table. That was one of our greatest joys. And so, so many of those recipes are are recipes that friends shared with us um, that we picked up along the way from our time in Italy and our time in New York where we lived for quite a long time. They, They become part of you. Those recipes that you eat throughout your life and that really means something that you share with people that you love, really start meaning something and, and you want to then share them with other people. Listen, I, I don't want to talk about football. I'm a diehard Steelers fan and we had a rough go of it here at the end. For Super Bowl coming up, you know, a great recipe that we thought would be the four onion dip out of your book. First of all, onion dip's fantastic, but this one looks amazing. You know, one of the first things I learned to make as a kid was onion dip, which was just sour cream and the powder yeah. <laughs> mix added in. Right. A little bit of a step beyond that, but it's not it's not that much. It's you know, you're taking your sour cream or your Greek yogurt and you're adding some really finely chopped sauteed onion. We're also adding some uh, sauteed garlic as well as fresh scallion and then finishing it all off with chives scattered on top. So you've got that mix of sort of sweetly cooked onions as well as that fresh hit of the scallions and the chives. I mean, it sounds delicious. I can't wait to make that myself. Onion dip sounds like a great idea. So before I get you out of here, I thought maybe we could give our top tips really quick for the bane of an onion chopper's existence, the tears. How can we stop people from crying when they cut onions? I've got a couple of tips. I'm sure after all the onions you've cut, after writing this incredible book, you have some as well. I really, again, stand by using a sharp knife. I think that really helps because it cuts cleanly through those onion cells as opposed to tearing them, you know, that a dollar knife. And I also subscribe to the idea that sometimes it's okay to cry. (laughs) And sometimes you just need, you need an excuse. And so just, if they're making you cry, just go with it. (laughs) The one thing you can do that works great when you're cutting onions, if you put a lemon wedge in your mouth, that does work. I have heard that. Yeah. Or a piece of bread too. And if you do start crying uncontrollably and you can't help it, stick your head in the freezer. You will stop crying immediately. In the same way, using a colder onion, if you pop the onion in the fridge for an hour or so, that can also help. Just having... um, Oh, there you go. Yeah, just keeping it a little cold will also help. So your head or the onion, one or the other. Hey, just as long as one of them's cold, you're good to go. (laughs) Kate, we really appreciate your time. The book is beautiful. The book is called Onions, Etc. Kate, you are fantastic. I love meeting another person who loves onions, possibly more than I do. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. That was Kate Winslow, author of the cookbook Onions Etc., The Essential Allium Cookbook. Later in the hour, a local historian who also happens to be a trained chef explains onion history in Westport. And after the break, Sephra Alexandra, the seed huntress, explains how her Southport Globe Onion Initiative brought back a once highly sought after, very delicious onion. And what did we do? We harvested that seed, the first Southport Globe Onion 
Southport Seed in over 130 years. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. I love to say that great cooking starts with an onion. But our next guest reminded me that it actually starts with a seed. Sephra Alexandra is an agroecologist and ethnobotanist. But don't worry, she will explain what all of that is. We're talking to Sephra because she's the founder of the Southport Globe Onion Initiative and has done something pretty amazing in the onion world. We'll get into that in a second. But first, what exactly does an ethnobotanist do? As an ecologist and a naturalist in the modern day world, I spend about half my life defining all the terms that I use to describe myself. (laughs) (laughs) that that's part of the joys. So ethnobotany is really about looking at the knowledge and relationship that local people have with the land and the plants that surround them. I was born and raised on the traditional land of the Golden Hill Pagasset tribe in Greens Farms, Connecticut, which is now called Greens Farms. Traditionally, it was called Matchamucks, which means the beautiful land, because Long Island Sound, with its beautiful estuaries that it has, was actually where all of the fish, so much of the, the marine life of Long Island Sound, that was its nurseries. So some of the most peaceful tribes in the nation lived there because there was such an abundance and plethora of food from shellfish to acorns to when the chestnuts were proliferating through our broadleaf forests. In an effort to honor that and to honor my lineage, I've spent the past decade and a half as the seed huntress on the hunt to preserve the biodiversity of our earth through seed conservation and letting people understand and know how they can interact with their local food ways and food cultures. Something that occurred to me is that I would never think that food could become extinct, but it actually can. Is that correct? Absolutely. And as we go um, down the tail of the Southport Globe Onion, just like when we see heavily utilized monocultures, or when you plant one type of species predominantly on a landscape, like we saw with the Irish potato famine, like I reported on when I did my ethnobotanical field work in the South Pacific as a fellow for the Crop Trust that safeguards all of our world seed diversity. You've maybe heard of Svalbard, the global seed vault. When a blight wiped out that taro, it was because it's vegetatively propagated, which means you just take new plant shoots and you replant it, which is the same genetics. So just like in all of those cases, when we don't have biodiverse genetics in our landscape, you can become really susceptible to a blight or a smut, which was what took out the Southport Globe Onion and basically ended the industry. So that kind of comes in the middle of the tale. But if I can start at the beginning, I can tell you really how it all began. Have at it. So first, just to understand where we are. Okay, so I was born and raised, again, in Greens Farms, um, which was in 1648 settled by the original Bankside farmers who were 
Thomas Newton, Henry Gray, John Green, Daniel Frost, and Francis Andrews, because they all came from Bankside, England. And they went on the original cow chairs from Fairfield, and they settled Green's Farms and turned their land into agriculture. Well, they were farmers. That's how you provided for yourself in 1648. Turns out that you would see crop wild relatives. So what naturally occurs on our landscape, the wild food crops, there's tons of onion grasses. So, hey, we have great soil for onions, for the alliums. Weathersfield, which is up in the Connecticut River Valley, which is also famous for their onions, they had seeds that eventually the onion farmers back in Fairfield County and around that area got their seeds from Weathersfield. Now, the genetics of that allium that was even in Weathersfield actually comes from England if we want to trace it all the way back. But for the purposes of our story, um, these great seed growers, or onion growers and seed keepers, took these seeds from Weathersfield and then brought them to our local area down in Southport, Westport, Fairfield. Basically, our area became known as the seed capital of the world and every hill and valley and nook and cranny had the beautiful allium white flowered pom-poms growing. And Southport Harbor sent 200,000 barrels um, each year on sloop sailboats to the New York City markets that teenage boys would sneak on and have their, have their adventures in New York. And the whole culture was really around onions, though. White onions with the red blushes were given as Valentine's Day gifts. And you can just kind of hear and see the carts taking these onions to market all around our land. As I said before, the blight hits, the smut hits at the end of the 19th century, black mold forms on your onions. And that's actually still present in the soil today, but no more onion farming. So those onion warehouses turned into speakeasies that the likes of Fitzgerald hung out at. And he and Zelda would be partying at what the Gatsby's actually based off of is the gentleman who owned Longshore. That's a whole nother story. But Southport then kind of took a big turn away from the agrarian history. So as a seed saver, as someone who wants to go around the world inspiring people to re-involve themselves in this ancient art of seed saving, I said, it is time to bring this onion back. And I went on a hunt for the seed. So a great seed celebrity, as I call it, Jer Gettle, nice. who owns, nice nice thanks for laughing. So Jer Gettle, who owns Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, they actually safeguard these old heirlooms, just like Seed Savers Exchange. And they do a lot of great work, right? We have all these towns all over that are known for these famous heirlooms, the Mac Cumber, Turnip, the 7,100 familial varieties of apples of which 6,800 have now gone extinct. But anyways, everything's positive. The ROI of seed is strong. Plant one, get hundred. So anyways, so I contacted Baker Creek. They still had the red and the white. The yellow Southport Globe onion still eludes me. So if anyone listening knows where that seed is, please let me know. But the problem, that seed was grown out by seed growers in the Midwest. And so it was time to bring that seed home because bioregional adaptations means that seed is adapting to our local terroir, our local climate, our local pests. So we needed to revive that heirloom by welcoming the Allium home for the first time in 130 years, which is when we started the Southport Globe Onion Initiative. For people who might not know, I asked her to define the term heirloom. Let's say you go to a farmer's market and you eat a tomato. And you say, oh, man, that is the best tomato that I've ever had. Well, scoop out that seed, put it in a jar, add a little water, let it mold, dry the seed. And you, my friend, now have that tomato seed for more tomatoes than you could ever eat. 
And then here's what you do. You keep on selecting and saving and selecting and saving year after year that seed, and that becomes your family's personal heirloom. So an heirloom refers to seeds that have been caretaken and passed down through generational lineage and reference a place and a taste. And um, that's a lot of what you'll find at your local farmer's markets and things like that. That is fascinating. Yeah, you too can have your own heirlooms. Before we get back to Sephra's revival of the Southport Globe Onion and the community's response to it, I shared with her that I've lived in four different houses in Westport over the last 15 years. Now, I am no gardener, but when I pull weeds in those different yards, I'd think, huh, this looks like an onion. Are my weeds actually onions? One side note on weeds, some people say it's a derogatory term for super great edible plants, your dandelions, your burdocks, your chicories. So much of, they say, the weeds that grow where you are is actually the medicine and the food that you need. So I eat a lot of the quote unquote weeds that grow in my garden. But okay, so what did we do? I get the seed from Baker Creek. This was now, let's say four years ago. And I brought my dear friend, William Alfred Hart Bernie Jr. of Edgemarth, who has been my partner and the onion king on this endeavor. And we spoke with the great Charlie Stebbins, who's done so much to revive the Autobahn near Southport and make it take out the invasives, put in the native the native plants, which provides food and habitat for the migratory birds. And it is just this symphony of ecology back there. And I said, Charlie, we're starting this onion initiative. We want to put it somewhere where the local residents can see it. We want them to interact and understand how important this is, this revival. He said, great, here's a patch of land. So what Willie and I did was we utilized our local resources that they would have used 130 years to build the soil because this was exactly where the onions used to be. So we would go down to Southport and Bering Hill Beach and gather all this seaweed and we would just heave heaps of seaweed onto our bed and then we would let it decay and mulch it in. And boy, did we make gorgeous soil, like worms you can't believe, this dark humming. Oh, it was just beautiful, beautiful soil. So Willie, you're amazing. And then... We had started our seeds inside, right? Because you want to start your seeds inside and grow it till they're about pencil thickness. And then we put the seeds back out on the landscape. And boy, did they do great. We mulched them with salt hay. So that salt grass, we would harvest that. We would wildcraft that. And then we would lay that over our onions because that keeps the moisture in and makes it so we don't have to use other forms of mulch. And um, the onions grew great. They were so gorgeous. The best thing about that was all the neighbors would say, hey, my house was an old onion farm. My grandfather was an onion farmer. I used to have onions in my backyard. And what happened was this great coming together of community around our agrarian history, which made my heart sing. So it was just like the legend in the lore. It was, you know, seeds are these ancient embryos of our ancestors and they hold the story of place. And when you put them back in the place, all these stories come back. It was just so encouraging kids and adults and grandparents everyone was contacting me and telling me all these things so the first year we harvested the onions when they're just a bolt they haven't flowered yet and then we stored them and then the second year we put them back and then their gorgeous white pom-pom allium you know star-shaped flowers are so gorgeous and the, and the sights everyone used to see all around us they came back and what did we do we harvested that seed the first Southport Globe Onion 
Southport Seed in over 130 years. I kind of want to clap like after that. I don't oh my gosh, that, that is outstanding. It's all about the seed. So it's been it's been positive. It's successful. It's successful, but then it's like, how do we share this, right? So what we did was we started a seed library at the local Southport Pequot Library. Nice. What's a seed library? Well, just like you check out a book from a library and then you return it, we put some of these Southport Globe Onion seeds in these little old card catalog drawers and you can come and for free, you sign out your onion seed, you grow it, and hopefully two years later when you save your own seed, you return some of it. And what that does is it makes it so we have free local access to all of these now bioregionally, or even better, eco-regionally, that's another conversation, adapted seeds for sharing in our community. And then we taught the kids, and Greens Farms Academy was growing it, and we talked to all the garden clubs, and we gave it to them. And then everyone's talking about onions. So what do you do at that point? You have an onion festival. Yes. <laughs> so we had at my mother's gorgeous house on Beachside Avenue on the Gold Coast. We just sold it after 40 years. We have the annual Southport Globe Onion Festival with, you know, Grateful Dead cover bands and onion potlucks and kids games where you can make stamps with the onion seeds and crowned onion kings. And then there's other towns throughout Connecticut that have their garlic festivals and all these other things. And the Southport Historical Society, their logo is the onion. So now it's our intention to give this back as a gift to the community, say, let's celebrate our history. Let's celebrate our land. Let's celebrate caretaking and stewardship and seed saving and all of these great things. And may I add, the most delicious, the most nutritious, used to prevent scurvy during the wars, high in vitamin C, Southport Globe Onion. Fantastic. I mean, my goodness. I am so inspired right now, Manisal. I'm telling you, from Sefer, from now on, whenever I touch an onion to cook it, to slice it, to chop it, to, to whatever I'm going to do with it, I will be thinking of you and the amazing work you've been doing. Uh, with the, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> inspired right now. You're infectious the way you talk about this. Last one for me. Are there any other vegetables similar to the Southport Globe onion that you're hoping to revive? Like, what's, it's like you're going to tackle one more. Well, if I may... I would like to just briefly mention that I'm leading the Pollinator Health Initiative right now for CT NOFA, which is the Northeast Organic Farming Association. We have a USDA specialty crop block grant to grow native pollinator crops on farms. Why is this important? Because if we want these onions, if we want all these other tomatoes and all of this wonderful produce we need to cook, we need the pollinators to be on our farms. So what we've done is we've worked with botanists who know how to sustainably wild collect seed. Then we put those seeds of the milkweeds, the penstemons, the, the wood asters, all these gorgeous native plants that the bees and all of the biodiversity of insects need throughout the season, throughout the day, on the farm. And then when the insects are there, then they're going to go party in the blueberries and, and the tomatoes and all the things and the onions. And... Um, then we save that seed, clean that seed, stratify the seed, and give it to the local nurseries so that homeowners and gardeners and farmers and municipalities can have access to the truly local native seed. So that's what I've been focusing a lot of my time around, and we'll be talking about it at the Northeast Organic Seed Conference coming up, in an effort to preserve biodiversity in all of its beautiful arcs 
you know, seeds are the greatest tools of resilience we have. My great mentor says, we are the people of the pinch at a pinch in time and we can either safeguard this biodiversity or watch this massive erosion go away. So what I invite is to all the people who are listening, my friends, seed saving is so much easier than you think it is. Find one crop that you're passionate about. That means a lot to your family and look up how to save those seeds because I promise you it's so easy. And when you have these beautiful embryos in your hands, it will completely change your relationship with your garden and with your landscape. As Bill McDormand also says, he would take his phone in one hand and a seed in the other, and he would say, which of these has more technology? And then he would open his hand and go, the seed, because it's been able to adapt all over the world since time immemorial for all that's ever been, for all that shall ever come. So I invite you all to join in the art of seed saving and find the crop that inspires you. Wow. Sephra, you're awesome. So are you. I'm really excited to uh, help spread the word of the Allium Anadi. I love it. Thank you so much, Sephra. Thank you very much. Hope to see you next season. <laughs> that was Sephra Alexandra. She is an agroecologist and ethnobotanist based in Westport. She's known as the Seed Huntress. Go to her website to learn more about the fascinating seed-saving work she does in Connecticut and beyond. You'll find her at seedhuntress.com. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a little more onion history in Connecticut. We talk to chef and historian Ramin Ganeshram. In fact, Ulysses S. Grant would not move his troops unless he could be assured that he had a supply of onions waiting for them or to go with them. And I'll share my own take on French onion soup. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plump. When you start digging into onions, you discover that they have an interesting story in our state. Ramin Ganeshram is the executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. She also happens to be a trained chef. Ramin will add a layer, or maybe peel back a layer, to the onion's history in Westport. But first, we wanted to learn about her personal culinary traditions when it comes to cooking onions. My mother was from Iran. My father was from Trinidad and Tobago. They're both cultures that make use of onions really extensively. And it's interesting to me because the Iranian side, you know, onions are quite an, have a long cultivation and use, three, 4,000 years. So this is a really multi-millennia experience on my mother's side. My father's side is from colonialization, the shipping of onions eventually to the new world. But um, in Iran, almost every dish starts with cooked onions. There's a term in Farsi that just relates to cooked onions. So when you look at old recipes, it says, it's called piaz dog, hot onions, cooked onions. And that's just the, that's the first step. Like we'll say, preheat oven to 350, heat your pan over medium heat. Those recipes start with, start with cooked onions. So for me, I mean, I have a love for onions in terms of their taste, but also it really has to do with, it feels like my mom. It feels like my family. It's a, it's, comforting the way a lot of people will say oh the smell of baking at Christmas is so comforting well to me it's the smell of cooked onions yeah and I would say my daughter who's 15 says the same thing too yeah I remember being an exchange student in Chile and missing home so much and I came home and my roommate was sauteing onions and I was like 
it feels like home. I feel like I'm back in New York again. So it's a smell and memory just conjure so many things. And onions have such a pungent smell. Every culture has some sort of affinity for onions or starting with onions. So I have to ask about this. Is this true? You buy onions in 10 to 20 pound bags. What am I doing wrong? Because I only buy the ones that are on sale for like $2.99 for the five pound bag. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's I, I tell a story that my husband and I were in a supermarket and we were doing our shopping and then there was a couple and they were clearly doing a recipe. One of them says to the other, the guy says, oh, the recipe has onions. And she's like, oh, you better get one. And we looked at each other like, what? Better get one. And we're going, why don't you have five pounds in your, in your house? And so that's how much we use. Like I buy them 10 and 20 pounds at a time because every single night, a whole onion is used in whatever I'm cooking. It's just, it's a given. And do you have any tips for how to not cry? Because I know chef has his, every chef has their, their little thing to do to not tear up. Well, first of all, the reaction to onions is genetic, right? How badly you react is genetic. And um, I've cooked onions probably every day for the last 30 years, 35 years, and every day I cry. There is nothing I can do about it. I put it in the refrigerator. I put, people say, just put certain things in, you know, like a potato in your mouth, a lemon in your mouth. I just, I'm just used to it now. I, I feel, but I, w- I will say that if I'm going to use a huge, huge quantity and I, it can be minced, I do it in the food processor. So I don't have to stand there over all the onion juice. I know it is. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> it's good to have a good cry when you're making dinner. It adds emotion to the That's food. True. I like that. That's right. <laughs> I know it reminds me of Tita in like Water for Chocolate. Yes. I don't know if you guys read the book, but yes. she's like, she pours, you know, she pours her heart and soul into that food. Um, I will not ask you to give us your favorite onion recipe that you make because that would be unfair. It's like picking your favorite child, although I do have a favorite child. Don't tell them it's Liam. Um, <laughs> but I know that in Epicurious, you you published vegan sour cream and onion dip. You're a frequent contributor. That sounds delicious. Please tell us. The, the trick is I use vegan cream cheese, not sour cream, because I don't think vegan sour cream is really comparable to actual sour cream. But vegan cream cheese can be adapted to have that tang and that consistency and the color of, of sour cream. It's, it's really delicious as a spread and as a dip. And it, but the, the key is the onions. You have to have you know, onions cooked for a long time. You know, the chef, they have to be on a low heat, slowly cooked, deeply caramelized, be careful that they don't blacken because then they add bitterness, right? right? Absolutely. Um, it's a game of patience, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Ramin, clearly you are, you're a trained chef, but you are also a historian, uh, which I love. And so as we take a deep dive into onions, we came across the research that West Porters like to think we are the onion capital of the world, that somehow this sleepy little seaside town with its fancy main street is somehow attached to the onion. Please dispel the myth or confirm it. It's kind of one of these things that, you know, how myths start with a little seed of truth. It's not a complete fallacy, but it's not 100% true. And so you have to really backtrack and think about what Westport was. Westport was a harbor town, a farming town. It was a, it was a working harbor until probably the 40s. Um, it wasn't the town you know now. Every shop on that main street was a very purposeful shop, a hardware store, multiple grocery stores, bakeries, and all the way into the 18th century, you had industry built around agriculture, you know, shipping farm goods, usually to the West Indies via New York. So Westport 
which was then part of Fairfield or Norwalk. Let me be clear. There was no Westport in the 18th century. And then on to the West Indies. Uh, or I should say, during this whole period of time, onions were grown. So when you look at shipping records, you will see, along with other grains, corn, flax, wheat, and other vegetables, you'll see onions, but not in the vast quantities in Westport that people have been led to believe. So the, here's where the myth comes from. Fairfield, Southport, which is right across the border from Greens Farms in Westport, was in fact a major onion shipping area that was their main crop for about 40 years, from the mid-19th century to close to the end, 1840 to 1880. So, and in many cases, I think what people don't realize is that these farms cross the boundary. Part of it would be Southport, part of it would be what is today Westport. And so this myth kind of got created, uh, associated with Westport. The other myth is this, in the Civil War, onions were used to prevent scurvy um, and to have antimicrobial, you know, antibacterial properties, which they have for the Union Army. In fact, Ulysses S. Grant would not move his troops unless he could be assured that he had a supply of onions waiting for them or to go with them. So here in Westport, Lincoln's Secretary of War was close friends and allies with a man named Morris Ketchum, who was quite a wealthy Westporter. You must know his house, Hockenham, still stands on um, Cross Highway. Ketchum helped finance the Civil War. You know, in those days, people, private firms, private people would help finance major war efforts. This happened in the Revolutionary War as well. And so I assume, I can't prove this, but I assume that Westport's close affiliation with the war effort, certainly contracts must have been made for Westport farmers to be part of this big onion shipping event. And they were. During the war, there was an effort to grow and send more onions than ever before. But then after that period of time, and before that period of time, the kind of 40 years with that intensity over the war, it, just, it was just part of another group of crops. Southport's different. I mean, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time and your insight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Ramin Ganeshram. She's the executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. She's also a professionally trained chef a journalist, and a writer. Her latest book is The General's Cook, a novel which tells the story of Hercules, President George Washington's enslaved African-American cook. Friends, listen, a show about onions wouldn't be complete without a French onion soup. Let's do it. Share yours. I remember very distinctly being in culinary school and feeling like you go to a class called Skills One. It's your first day actually in the kitchen and you're cooking. And the first thing we make was a split pea soup and an onion soup. And it was like, you feel like you actually did something that day. It was pretty cool. And I've taken that same recipe and you know, added my own little twist to it. But my family loves it. I think it's delicious. So the key thing for me when you're doing this, and we talked about it with our guest Ramin, is just you got to cook those onions low and slow. You're going to feel like you want to put your hand in there and have a spoon and stir them constantly, but just leave them alone. I like to use red onions, white onions, shallots, leeks, chop it all up, get a pan, nice and hot, a little olive oil, a little butter, and I put all the onions in there, all of them at the same time. Pinch of salt, a little black pepper, and let it cook low and slow is the way to go when it comes to this. You don't want it to get blackened on the outside. You want it to look almost 
creamy, right? Is that a mm. weird way to describe the onions? No, 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 no. I mean, it turns caramelized, creamy, delicious. When you get to that point, you want to add your stock to it. I like to use nice, delicious chicken stock. You could use a beef stock if you wanted to, a vegetable stock. But for me, I like to use chicken stock. And the key thing I can tell you when you're doing this is don't put cold chicken stock in there. Put warm chicken stock. It's very, very important that you do that. I also sometimes add a little, uh, a bit of both, a little vegetable stock, a little chicken stock at the same time. Then let that kind of cook down. Let it kind of become nice and happy. Have a big party in there. Check your seasoning. Add a pinch of salt if you need to. Don't be afraid to add a little sage in there as well. In a separate pan, what I like to do is take a little olive oil, get it warm, put some sage leaves in there whole, and they kind of start to crisp up, and the olive oil takes on a little bit of that hint of that sage mm-hmm. flavor in there. Remove those. Let them cool off on a paper towel. Save that oil. Save those on the side. Take a little bit of bread, slice it up, a little baguette, slice it, toast it on your grill, on your flat top, even just in a pan. Ladle some of that soup into a bowl. Put your crouton right on top of there. That's the bread you cut. I like to top it with a little cheddar cheese or gruyere. Mm -hmm. Two drips of Worcestershire sauce on top of it. A little bit of black pepper and then take one of those crispy leaves, sage leaves, put it right on top and put it in the oven. Melt that in your broiler. When it comes out, finish it off a little spoonful of the sage oil, some fresh salt. This is the most delicious soup you'll ever have in your life when it comes to onions. It's so easy. It sounds delicious. Don't forget, everyone, you'll find recipes for Kate Winslow's red onion galette, grits with scallions and bacon, and four onion dip on ctpublic.org slash seasoned. There's also a link to Ramin's vegan onion dip on our show page, too. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. And also, a big shout-out to my mother-in-law, Patty, for giving us the idea to do an onion show. Join us right here at 3 p.m. next week for a live call-in show covering the best takeout in Connecticut. We want to know where you go and what you order. Call us with all your recommendations. Talk to you next week, and thanks for listening.